Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Today I'm really pleased to be joined for a second time by David Perry of Perry Martel. Welcome again, David. Good morning, ma'am. Thank you for having me. And David's joining us from Ottawa, Canada, where he works as a specialist in executive search, but he's also a prolific author and has written various bestsellers, including Executive Recruiting for Dummies, Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters, and Hiring Greatness. So very much with a theme around the full understanding of leadership and how organizations grow that capability. So Today, we're going to focus in on what might appear to be a fairly abstract subject. We're going to call it Industrial Revolution 4. And regular listeners will know that we've previously touched on this subject uh, with Jeff Wold, who was author of The End of Jobs. But today, I would like us to focus in particularly on what the changes in the working world actually mean for recruitment business owners specifically. In other words, recruitment entrepreneurs as leaders, because things are doubtless changing for them as well. But David, to start us off, could you just explain for any audience members who are not familiar with the the term Industrial Revolution 4.0, what exactly it means and what the first three were? Well, the fourth Industrial Revolution is, is the knowledge revolution. So let me go back to the beginning. The first industrial revolution was ushered in by the steam engine and that led to a lot of mechanization of work. And the second industrial revolution led by electrification of factories and machineries enabled mass production on a, on a grand scale. We all, all we often think of you know Fords and motor cars. And the third, which occurred in the second half of the 20th century, introduced computers to the workplace and led to the automation of the, both the back office administration and the teller's window and banks. And so the common theme in the first three industrial revolutions was the reduction of the organization's dependence on its human capital, people. Industry 4.0 is about to change that. And here's where Jeff and I are probably going to uh, uh, diverge dramatically. Industry 4.0 is driven by an electronically connected world. We talked before, everybody's connected by a cell phone. In the emerging 4.0 world, people are connected not only to each other, but also to each other's knowledge. And the impact of this connectivity is best summed up by the following observations by Dr. Nick Bonstis at McMaster University years ago. He said, in the 1930s, the accumulated, codified, i.e. written down, knowledge base of the world doubled every 30 years. That was 1930s. In the 1970s, it doubled every seven years. And he predicted by the time we hit 2000, which is 20 years ago, it would, it would double every 10 years. Well, that's the codified knowledge of the world. It, it's now doubling every two years. And, and that's the difference. 
we're now more dependent on knowledge than machinery. So what does that mean for leaders? And what does that mean for workers? And what does that mean for executive search professionals? That's what you want to know, right? Mm, exactly. What does it mean to workers? It means that a knowledge worker has knowledge that somebody needs. And, and the only way, if you're in a highly competitive world where everybody knows that everybody else knows almost instantly, like knowledge has a shelf life of a, of a banana, the only way to keep ahead of the market and to keep introducing new products, new services, is to get some really smart people in the room who all know a little bit or a lot about a, you know, a specific area, but they work together. So you know, one and one becomes three or five. Okay. So what you're doing is a very knowledgeable person and another knowledgeable person. You get them to work together and they come up with something new. That's the knowledge economy. What, what you're really managing then as, as, a, as a leader is that blank space. This is, I, I know this is very artsy-fartsy, but that blank space in between the, the two people, right? That's what you're, you're managing. Well, here's the issue. As a knowledge worker, you can participate or not because your thoughts are your own. So if you don't trust someone, if you don't think that they're doing things that are in your best interest, you're not going to cooperate or you're only going to cooperate a little. And, and, and this is what we're experiencing right now. Leaders, um, we've all seen this in our companies, you know, the smartest guy or the best sales guy um, gets promoted and he's a horrible manager. Why is he a horrible manager? Because he can't get people to work together. Why? Because they don't trust him or they don't trust the process. So this whole concept of uh, emotional intelligence, corporate intelligence, and relationship intelligence, EI, CI, and RI, this all comes into place here. And I'll stop being you know, airy-fairy in a second. So what does this mean to leaders or owners? It means that people, really smart people, that can get people to work together and have good people's, people skills are more value than anything else. I, I've just been through this with a CIO search. We're hiring a CIO who's going to come in to manage a team of probably 200 people. These people know way more than he does. Absolutely, they, they all know more than he does. But his job as the leader is to get these people to work together in an environment where they trust each other, will come to work every day, and will have each other's back and trust each other to share their knowledge to build something greater. That's a skill, and it's a skill we're not used to in the workforce. Because as we know for the last, well, I'm showing my age, but 61, right? For the last 40 years, I got out of university, what you knew, you guarded, because that was your only capital, right? I know how to do this, so I'm not going to tell anybody else, because if I tell somebody else, then they can do it, and they don't need me anymore. Well, now we all know this, right? So in, in, in the old days, the smartest leader, the guy that knew the most about a certain issue, he was the person put in charge. Now it's impossible, because of how much knowledge there is, it's impossible to know everything you need to know about a certain subject. What you need is a bunch of people who collectively know all this and can solve an issue or create something as a group. So, you know, in a 1.0 world, the leader's focus was on building high-performance individuals. One at a time, two, two at a time. In a 4.0 world, the, the leader's focus is, is on building high-performance cultures or groups of, of people, and that's the major difference. So I don't believe for a second that Industry 4.0 
is about the uh, is about the bits and the bites and the bleeds and the feeds. No, no, it's all about knowledge and individual people's knowledge. Those jobs are not going to disappear, or at least the ones that we call quote unquote good jobs are going to disappear. They're going to change. And what this means is you need a different type of leader. You need a leader that can bring people together, can build consensus, and get people to work together. That's not all that common. Okay, so if I can just sum up what you're saying, because you've used a lot of phrases there that I think people sometimes quote without necessarily fully understanding. So you've just described the high performance culture as in effect the successful design of that, what you really brilliantly called the empty space between really clever people, yeah, that creates something better than the sum, greater than the sum of the parts. And how managing that culture becomes the biggest new leadership skill. Whereas if we, um, oh, I don't know, went back to even, you know, pre-industrial um, revolution and looked at, oh, I don't know, imagine some medieval apprentice. The guy, the guy in charge was the guy who made the best shoes or the best carvings or the best furniture and pass that knowledge on to somebody else and that's not the case now okay so that's really a helpful way of summing up where we've got to let's just have a look at recruitment business owners as leaders then because their question naturally is going to be well okay what what can i develop in order to create that high performance culture so what would you look for now if you were looking for a brilliant leader of a recruitment business or executive search business for now. Have you seen the movie Queen? Uh, yes. Yes, of course. Okay. You remember that guy? And that guy is the guy that says, Bohemian Rhapsody? What kind of crap is that? Blah, blah, blah. This was the guy that ran the label that recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. If you can remember back to that movie, this is the guy telling them that's going to be a failure, and the band walked out. You don't want to be that guy. There are a lot of, of guys that individually, you go back to the Beatles, it's all British, right? um, that on their own are brilliant at what they do. Collectively, they're, wow. You know, the Beatles were, were that way, Queen was that way, and, you know, when the Beatles broke up and went their own, off their, their separate careers, they did okay, but they weren't the Beatles. And the same can be said for Queen. So when you recognize that you've got a bunch of very strong players, as you had in Queen, you don't want to be that guy that says, no, you're going to be uh, loving my car. That's the one we're going to go with a single. No, you want to listen to the band because they know more than you do, and they're going to create something brilliant. So you need to look for a leader who can not own this, comes back to being a recruiting leader, you need to look for a leader that can select the right people as individuals to play on a team and then get out of the way. Your job as a, uh, as a recruiting boss is to hire the best whatever in, in those different uh, uh, niches that you, you service and then get out of the way and make sure that you keep everything that can get in your player's way out of the way. That's your job. Your job is to make sure that they have the, 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 uh, the wherewithal and the, and the scope to grow. Does, does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. So um, if imagine, if you will, that you were currently retained to find and hire the new CEO of an executive search firm. 
this is the skill that you'd be looking for. But what I'm interested in is how would you look for that? Yeah, so so depending on the, on the maturity and the brightness of the people that are hiring me, because that's a big if, right? You're sort of saying, where would I go and who would I look at? So this is going to come as a surprise, not to me. You know, in our industry over the years, there have been a couple of types of people that have come out of regular industry, you know, like, like that we recruit into, that have been enormously successful. And the one that I think of most often when I have these kinds of things, because I've hired these guys. I mean, we're the recruiter's recruiter. I don't want to talk about it, but we're the recruiter's recruiter. I go after maitre d's of five-star restaurants. Why? Because they have to manage the customers coming in. They have to manage all the temperamental chefs and cooks in the back office. And if you're at a five-star restaurant, believe me, your chef is temperamental. It might actually be psychotic. And the wait staff. So having the patience to be able to, to manage that ebb and flow of information is what's important and make everybody happy. They're just a middleman, but their job is to make everybody happy and still get through the night and make money. So I'd be looking for that kind of personality and that kind of personality can easily be found in something like that. It could easily be found in a coach of a soccer team, a good soccer team, could easily be found in the head nurse. It's the skills that they have in the environment that they're in that allows them to perform under great pressure. Because we don't hire average recruiters. We don't. We hire prima donnas. Negative term, right? We hire superstars. And superstars become prima donnas when they don't have a great coach. And the great coach is worth more than the players themselves. I know they don't get paid that way. They should, but that's the bottom line. Just talk to me in a little bit more detail about the skills that type of person has developed. The ones that you've, because in, in effect, what we're saying is this is what a recruitment business leader needs now in the 21st century. So you've mentioned the ability to balance off demanding staff with the customers as well. Yeah. You've mentioned about the ability to coordinate multiple channels of information. Yeah. Simultaneously. Anything else that you would look for in a recruitment business leader? In hiring greatness, we spend a lot of time and we profile 28 skills, 28 skills that you're, that the best leaders had to have. It was 10 years ago, 10 years ago. I'll, I'll tell you right now that I've, I've, I've narrowed that down. There's four pairs, four pairs of skills. And, and this will make sense to you, given the examples I just used. You know, you, you need someone who is on one end humble and also has strong self-belief. That's, but those are two pairs that are at the opposite end. Humility and belief in self, yeah, they're opposite ends of that extreme. Right now, command and control person, a command and control CEO said, do this, do that, very authoritative. He's in the total belief in self. I know what I'm doing. I'm not gonna listen to any of you people. Just do this. And that's a recipe for disaster now, right now with knowledge workers. So humility and uh, belief in self are a pair that you have to slide along. And it, it's not that you're looking for someone who fits along the, the continuum. You're looking for someone who can, in a heartbeat, both be completely humble 
or know exactly what you need to do. They have to be able to do both simultaneously, given the situation. You need someone who can be totally intimate on one end and authoritative on the other. People have to, and by intimate, I mean, if you don't know your people and you don't love them and they don't love you, they're never going to trust you. And if they don't trust you, you can't accomplish anything. So you have to be intimate with your people. You have to know them and believe in them. They have to believe in you. At the same time, you have to be able to make the really hard calls. No, we're not going to go after that client for this reason. No, we're not going to go after that industry for this reason. So they have to be able to be intimate and have their people love them, but they have to be able to make that decision very authoritative at the other end because being wishy-washy means, yeah, they, they, they like me and they come with me, but you know ultimately they're going to fail, in which case it, it was pointless. So that's two of the pairs. The other pair is you need someone who builds a business for today and sees tomorrow. That's one of the hardest ones. So you're working in the business for recruiters. You're working in the business, but you're also working on the business. There's been a lot of books written about this. In the business, you're, you're doing it every single day. When you're working on the business or you're seeing tomorrow, you're able to stand back, look at the future, or think about what the future is going to look like and help move your group towards that. But you need to be able to do both. And to find both of those in the same person is very rare. Because when we when we hire a VP of sales, right, typically, we get we get brought into a company because the company's in trouble or they want to do something magnificent and so-and-so is not working out, right? So we need someone who's going to come in, bring in a lot of cash, put the hammer down, all that kind of stuff. That solves the immediate problem. But in solving the immediate problem, they may dissuade a whole pile of people that would normally have stayed at the firm from staying and, and going. So you need to be both in the, in the process and looking to tomorrow. And when you're humble enough to say, I don't know, tell me about it and listen and then make a decision. So humility and belief in self and you're intimate. I, you know, I really believe in you, but we have to do this. These are the pairs. So we've got three pairs done so far. But the last one is you need someone who's going to work for their own good. So work for self and work for the whole. In other words, in a plane crash, planes crashing, they say the plane's going down and the things come out of the, uh, the, the oxygen masks come out of the bulkhead. What's the first thing you're supposed to do if you've got a kid? You're supposed to look after yourself, aren't you? Exactly. Exactly. Because if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. And people have to understand that. That's the most dramatic way I can, I can put that. So the last pair is works for self and works for the whole. And when you work for the whole, you have all these people that believe in you and you believe in them. And when you do all this, it sounds, again, airy-fairy. It's not. It makes complete sense. When you have a group of people, I mean, look at Apple, for God's sake. Look at Apple. You can't recruit people out of Apple for love or money. They would rather die. That old cigarette ad, I'd rather fight than switch. They would rather die than leave Apple, unless there's something wrong with them, right? People don't leave companies that they love. They leave people that are idiots. So it's the same thing. You're looking for a leader, or you're the leader that's trying to build that culture that where people love to come to work, believe in each other, and it's you know it's not because you've got a you know a pool pool table in the uh, in the lobby or a beer or a fridge full of beer. 
which people think that's what engages employees. It's not. That's a total farce. In fact, the last company I saw, we left in the reception and the CEO came out to meet us. And I said, how long? And I said, Anita is my partner. Anita uh, Martell is my business partner and my wife. And I looked at the CEO and I said, uh, how long you had the pool table? He goes, oh, about five years. I said, huh, how often do people pay pool all the time? I said, well, why'd you get the pool table? Well, because so people will be happy when they come to work and want to come here. And I said, that's interesting. And I put up my hand. I said, thank you very much. And we left. His idea of engagement was what everybody else's idea of engagement is now. A lot of people in HR, you know, free beer, free massages. No, it's interesting work, working with interesting people who are good at what they do. They're passionate about what they're trying to accomplish and where they're going. Those are the type of people you hire. And they're all, quote unquote, prima donnas if, if they're really high energy. But they're not. They're just prima donna is just someone who's really, really good at what they do and doesn't appreciate having to put up with the bullshit of a moron manager. <laughs> okay. All right. So thank you. Just thinking then about leaders, you've described four pairs of quality skills that need to coexist in a leader who's going to be brilliant for today. Let's just turn around and look at that from the other side, because there is no doubt in my mind that expectations from employees have changed dramatically. So, you know, for a lot of people, recruitment was characterized by kind of sweatshop mentality, you know, kind of how many calls you have to make in a day or a week and seeing things ticking over on dynamic boards and, and high activity. And that was driven by a particular style of leadership, which is different to what you're describing now. Your story about the your client with the pool table brings to mind uh, some of the expectations that workers have of their leaders and of the businesses they'll go to to have a look at a uh, look at or engage with, and sometimes they they are persuaded in the short term by very very you know superficial signs. What would you say are the biggest serious shifts in? candidate expectations oh that's an easy one truth everybody talks about you know communications open communications transparency yeah so people have been talking about this for, for decades now right and it's coming back to haunt a lot of leaders because now it's oh you, what you said you were going to tell us about and you, and you didn't it, it's so easy to move from one job to another now, it's almost like it's frictionless, practically. If you're not open and honest, people won't stay. They don't have to stay. You know, you're even seeing this in, in, in the United States, and the U.S. is different than Canada and Britain. In Britain, we have socialized medicine, same within Canada. We believe that people's lives are worth something. This should be a right. In the States, people oftentimes if they change jobs, can't get medical insurance again. It, you know, so what they've created down in the States is, is an entire, uh, what's the term for it? It's not slavery, but you know, it's almost indentured slavery. So, but what's happened the last couple of years, and COVID has brought this to a boil, right? All these people who believe they're leaders, who went to places where the leaders said, we're gonna take care of you, 
we love you, take care of you, blah, blah, blah. And COVID came along and, and guess what? Industry after industry, a lot of them, it was a heartbeat decision, gone. Was it the right business decision? Doesn't matter. There was no discussion. There was no round table. You know, the leaders didn't come down and say, hey, listen, we're on hard times. What do you think we should do? They just said, gone. You know, the, the shipping industry, the, the cruise ship industry, the travel industry, you know, they got bailout after bailout after bailout. But for the people, which is gone, those companies, those organizations are going to have a real hard time getting anyone to work for them. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a really valid point that leaders have sometimes become acutely aware of their values and certainly some of their, their former employees have become aware of what their real values are, not what it says on the website, not what they say in their recruiting videos. And, you know, whatever your values are, it's important to, to have that self-awareness, isn't it? Because otherwise you are recruiting people into something that is not true and it becomes very rapidly clear to them once they join you. So that creates that, you know, very, very high stuff churn that so many organizations have experienced may i point out that that has that has created an incredible incredible opportunity for recruiters because now it takes such little effort to recruit a top candidate it really does that you know we're going through this now we're entering this this stage that i'll report about in two years I need to make the first five million on this, retire, and then say, here's how you do it. But to, to, to suffice it to say, our ability to call up a superstar in any industry and recruit them has never been easier. Why? Because all you have to do is enter into a discussion or conversation about whatever, football, whatever you got in common, you can find it on their LinkedIn profile, right? And have a little discussion and then talk about the future and what it means for them. And then ask when they say, I'm not looking for a job, you say, that's cool. So I'm sure that the you know, what were those two or three things that they promised you when they when they recruited you? And they'll tell you. And then you ask the question, so how's that look right now? Did, have they have they held true to all those things? And 99 times out of 100, one, two or three or all of them have just gone by the wayside. And all of a sudden, the real person realizes, oh, it's my talent that keeps me here, not the company. And that's a different conversation. So now you can recruit this individual and say to them, well, listen. You know, who are the top, it's MPC all, all over again, right? Who are the top, you know, three or four companies that you really have an interest in getting to know? You know, if you call any CEO in the country or any president or whatever and have a conversation with them, who are they? And they'll tell you, hello, that's your next phone call. This is a great opportunity for the industry as a whole, if it so chooses to do so, we've chosen to do so, to, you know, enter that Jerry Maguire part of the business where you're actually actually representing real talent to companies that have real needs. And that's what the future looks like for great recruiters. We have people with high expectations of their leaders, very much so. Are there any other additional expectations or shifts that you've noticed in uh, shifts you've noticed in the recruitment industry that are about more creative ways to successfully reward, motivate, and compensate people? Well, not us personally, because our, we've always been a little bit different. When we hired people who we were looking for, I always ask them, you know, what do you want? I always ask a question, what do you want out of life? What's important to you? And then we'll build a business. Most of our researchers, no, let me clarify that, all of our researchers, 
all 10 of them have been with us for more than 15 years. The first one I ever recruited, I recruited out of a huge executive search uh, company, and I called her up and I said, I am, and I've done this. And I've been working for them, batting cleanup for a while. And I said, uh, you know, like, are you making like, I don't know, what, 500,000? She laughed. Anyway, we had this conversation for about 15 minutes, and she was making 40 grand. And she was supporting two guys that were each making more than a million. I said, but don't you do all the research? Well, yeah, but I'm, I said, listen, I'll tell you why I'm asking. I, I want you to come work for me, kind of. I want you to quit your job. I'll pay you what you're getting now for two years in the bank. But I'm going to set you up in your own firm. You can run your own hours. You can work with anybody else in the world you want to as a researcher. Said so the only deal, the only the only qualifier is when I call, I don't care what you're doing, you take care of my stuff first. And that's what we've done to 10 people around the world. We have the best researchers in the world working for us that way. And they're still running their own businesses and they're making, you know, in some instances, you know, more than 10 times what they were making before. And they've got a different quality of life. This is the one business in the world that if you so choose to do so, can be a lifestyle business. And you make a lot of money, do a lot of good. And what you should be doing, I don't know if you have Remax in the UK, but what you should be doing is hire the best and the brightest, bringing them in and giving them a reason to stay because it's a better place to work. Not to leave because they can make 15% more or even 50% more. People won't leave great organizations even for 50% more money. They just won't do it. So you ask the question, what do we ask for? We ask, we, you know, what do we notice? You know, people are starting to realize that their staff, recruiters and researchers, support staff, uh, have dreams and aspirations beyond coming to work, to work for me every day. So when you ask them what those are and you start to help realize them, they'll work with you forever. In terms of giving people a reason to stay then, let's just go back to this. The right environment where their leaders are honest, absolutely key. Uh, number two is that their job is going to help them achieve their other ambitions rather than be something separate from their life goals, as it were. Is there anything else that you would add in terms of giving people a reason to stay? No, I think that's, I'd just be making it up at this point. Okay. All right. Just to finish off then, very quickly, David. Are businesses actually ready for the kind of lead, recruitment businesses? Are they ready for the kind of leader you describe? So you mentioned earlier those four pairs of apparently paradoxical competences that are needed for the leader of, of the future. But are recruitment businesses still looking for something different? Are they actually looking for someone who will just drive lots of activity, lots of calls? Do you think we're ready to really meet that leader and let them be the best they can be? Not a chance. The industry is is what it is, and, and most people are not brave enough to try something new. Most people are not brave enough to hand over the reins to someone else and get out of the way. You know, and it's not just recruiting firms, but it's any type of firm that has principals or partners in it. This architectural firm, uh, husband and wife team, phenomenal people. They were so uncomfortable letting go the reins of the organization 
so that somebody else could take care of the staff, to take care of the business of the business and allow them to do what they do, which is great, great designs. We held their hands and they would say that we did. We held their hand for four or five months to get them into that. But, but they had to have been, they were at a point where they had done everything else and there was nothing else they could try. So it's either this or be relegated to being a very small boutique organization that did that did interesting designs, but really ran after business and it was uh, hand to mouth. I suspect that most people listening or watching this podcast do not have enough confidence in themselves to go out and hire their own replacement. Not a better recruiter, but a better manager of a recruiting space or a company than they are. And it's a shame because they wouldn't have to pay a lot of money. They wouldn't have to pay you know, what typical recruiters are getting. You could go out and hire all kinds of operations people, maitre d's at restaurants. By the way, there's a lot of them available right now that can do this for you and allow you to do what got you into the business, which was the passion of supporting your clients and putting the best people in there. Okay. And talking about being brave enough to do something new, um, finally, David, I know you are doing something new and disruptive with the job board. Do you want to just briefly tell our listeners about that? Yes, I confess that I hate Monster Board, I hate Career Builder, I hate Indeed, and I hate LinkedIn. And I was a 107,000th member of, of uh, LinkedIn, and I was probably the 50th person on Monster. That's how old I am. And all of these social tools and recruitment tools have been built on the backs of recruiters. And at my age now, I've, I've had enough. Uh, I'm now building a job board for recruiters to use. It will be free. It will take a while to get it up and running with the same kind of volume that um, LinkedIn and, and Monster once had. But uh, I have no doubt that uh, we'll do that. And it'll stay free for the rest of my life because people know that I'm behind it. And a lot of them know where I live. <laughs> You heard it here. So it's workinsight.io. Have I got that right? Yes. And I'd also urge all listeners, um, if you haven't done so already, do go to David's website, Perry Martel, which has a wealth of great resources, which you've been very kindly shared with, you know, the public recruiters and client and your clients, which is to me a really great working example of the values of leadership that you mentioned you know, someone who's willing to think about self and the whole. There's, they're available there to download. David, thank you very much for being my guest again. Anyone who's missed it, there is an earlier episode with David where we look more closely at uh, recruiting for our clients. Um, I'm Alison Humphreys of Recruitment Leadership. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.